This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back. I'm Peter Capelli, Professor of Management here at the Wharton School. And with me is not Dan O'Mara. Uh, with me is the fabulous Greg Shea, longtime faculty member here at the Wharton School. Hello, hello. So let's get down to work. We're going to talk about uh, addiction problems uh, in the workplace, but more generally addiction problems. So uh, I'm going to uh, – we're going to do a little quiz here, Greg. Oh, okay. And I don't I, do well with these. Yeah, the, but that's, that's why you keep asking me, isn't well, it? Well, the beauty you just of, enjoy this. The beauty like, of that is that everybody else feels better. And oh, good, I should okay. say that I have no idea what the answer to these quizzes were. I just happen to have written down the answers. So I know. <laughs> okay. And uh, this will shock Miss Patty. So be careful um, if you're not seated that I've actually prepared and dug Ooh. up some statistics on this topic. So here's something that uh, I think is, is really interesting. A uh, serious uh, topic – uh, of addiction issues. If we look at illicit drugs, let me just give you the number for this one, how much we spend basically treating people who use illicit drugs and have healthcare-related problems, the number is $11 billion a year. Okay, uh, What do you think we spend on treating people for prescription drug uh, problems, particularly addiction issues. I'm going to do a high-low on this and say yeah. it's higher. It is higher. It is $26 yeah. billion. Dollars. So it is more than twice as much we spend dealing with health-related problems for prescription drugs, addiction to prescription drugs. On the other hand, uh, to put this in perspective, what do you think we spend on health care costs for alcohol-related addiction? I'm going to say that's higher than uh, the uh, first number as well. It is far higher than illicit drugs. It is $27 billion for alcohol-related uh, addiction issues, health care costs for that, as compared to $11 billion for illicit, but it is just about the same, same for as... prescription drugs. So $26 billion for prescription drugs and $27 billion for alcohol. So you're pushing... Well, you're over. You're over sixty billion dollars. Oh, in but wait. Oh, okay. When we get to there's de- even more. We get to okay. tobacco. It's one hundred and sixty-eight yeah, yeah. billion dollars. Right. And if we start looking at the overall costs, that is, costs in lost productivity and right. costs in all kinds of other things, these numbers are really big. Three hundred billion for tobacco. Two hundred and forty-nine billion for alcohol. One hundred and ninety-three billion for illicit drugs. For prescription drugs, actually, for some reason, the total is not as big as $78 billion total. But so what's puzzling about this? Well, or what's interesting about this, alcohol and tobacco, uh, tobacco in particular for health care issues, swamps everything. Uh, alcohol uh, is as bad as pre- prescription drugs in terms of the health-related costs. But prescription drug addiction is by far worse than illicit drug health-related problems, right, which is, I think, all quite surprising to me. But one takeaway from this, all these numbers are really big. 
It's uh, all self-medication. Yeah, and it's self-medication for probably all these things. For everything. Right? Yeah, for yeah. all these things, right? So I should say it's really, really handy to have Greg here uh, I, today. I couldn't answer. I got the high-low right. Well, no, because See, you, this. because you because are, of my addiction problems. Your psychology, oh, oh. your psychology problems, uh, and not have <laughs> Dan, uh, who's a lawyer, would just yell at people. No, that's, oh, okay. that's his view on these things, right? So it's a pleasure to have Carol Connolly with us. Carol is the clinical director of the Dunes East Hampton, uh, which will tell us a little bit about what they do. But generally, this is uh, uh, a place where they deal with addiction problems. So, Carolyn, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's Carolyn. Carolyn. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so, Carolyn, um, maybe you could help us a little bit on the context uh, with this, and that is a, a sense of the scope of the problems that uh, that you see dealing with people and trying to help them get over these problems. So can you give us a little background as to the nature of the problems, what you folks see and what you deal with? Well, I did think your statistics were interesting and, frankly, not surprising to me Good. that the highest addiction rate was a prescription drugs because I would say, you know, um, at the Dunes, um, we do... Uh, treat primarily executives and people with sort of very busy, um, often prominent uh, positions in life and and are people who, um, you know, maybe on the surface you wouldn't think, you wouldn't sort of stereotype, which is another thing that I think is a big issue going down the road to speak about. Um, But, you know, a lot of the clients that we have that come here are people who did start to get into addiction by taking drugs that were prescribed by prescribed. doctors for yep. either um, health reasons or post-surgery mm-hmm. um, or for all the stress and anxiety or for traveling. They start taking sleep meds. Oh, so, yeah, most of these medications mm-hmm. are prescribed, mm-hmm. and that leads to um, a dependency that then turns into a nightmare. Yeah. Before we get into to, uh, how to deal with the addiction, maybe we talk just a little bit more as to the causes. One of the statistics I forgot to mention is that 70% of people who have addiction problems continue to work, and that's why we are in the workplace, right? This mm-hmm. issue is something that spills into the workplace in quite a big way as well. So let's talk a little bit more, if you wouldn't mind helping us figure out or understand a little bit about how people get ad- addicted particularly to the prescription drugs. So it, it sounds like, uh, is it fair to say that most of what you would see uh, are with addiction problems are pain-related drugs, or what, what's it look like? Well, the Howard is so interesting because once the drugs are in your system, a whole other thing starts happening that is of, of a biological nature. But yes, I think a lot of people are prescribed any of the opioid, any of the opioids are usually prescribed for pain. Yeah. Um, but we also see a lot of people that are um, prescribed benzodiazepines for stress okay. or sleep aids like Ambien, for, you know, because they can't sleep. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I'd say there is a combination of treatment for pain and treatment for stress. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, you've been doing it for a little while. If you if you look at this over time, is this problem in the executive ranks in particular, is it worse now? Is it spiked at a particular time? Is this sort of great recession related at all? Or what, what's your sense of the timeline on this? I, you know, that's an interesting question because I think that there's so much now in the news and in the media and so many people are talking about this that it feels like it's bigger. 
I mean, I think addiction has been around since the beginning of time. People yeah. have been self-medicating, as Greg said, since the beginning of time. So it's hard to say whether there's a spike or there's just more attention being paid to it. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. The story, and that's a good point, that the stories about these things don't always perfectly track uh, reality. And I think the juicy story that uh, some pharmaceutical companies may have played a role in increasing the use of opioids, I think, made the story kind of bigger bigger uh-huh. than it would be. Uh, it was interesting to hear you mention sleep, uh, addiction to sleep um, medications, and a lot of people uh, get on these through work-related uh, issues. Do you see this? Do you think this is a particular ex- executive issue? I do. Is, I know. do, for a number of reasons. One, people are traveling all over the world, so they take sleep meds so that they can sleep on the plane or when they get back to deal with jet lag. I think that a lot of um, executives are working really lots of hours, really high-pressure jobs. They can't turn their brains off when they get home, so they take a pill and they go Mm -hmm. to sleep. Mm -hmm. And then they usually take something else to get going in the morning, and Mm -hmm. it's just a cycle. Mm And uh, the uh, the sleep ones in particular, I mean, I think this m- certainly is obvious to you, and a lot of people know more about this than I do, but uh, c- could you tell us a little bit about what the addiction, how it, how it sort of happens, particularly with sleep medicines? They're not addictive in the same way that opioids are. You don't get a craving for sleep medicines. Well, Ambien, you can. Oh, you can, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. And we had found people using Ambien similarly to they would for like Klonopin or Xanax or something like that because it does help you relax and sort of calm down. Okay. Hmm. So, yes, in fact, we've had people come here strictly for Ambien Hmm. just to get off of Ambien. And Mm -hmm. they've been, and it starts at bedtime and it moves down to like dinner time and then the afternoon and they find themselves using it Mm -hmm. as as another form of relaxation Hmm. for stress relief. So have you found a change over time? in the the nature of the addictions that you're dealing with? Probably more prescription drugs over the last, say, five years, yes. But to take people up, take them down, do both? Both. I would say, and I certainly don't live in the world um, that, uh, that that you live in. I've, I've uh, had... Um, contact because of the time I spend in the C-suite with executives who have had drug problems. Uh, and I would, in that limited sample, I would say that as we closed out the last century, I would say that the addictions were more um, to amphetamines, metamphetamines, um, things that get people through. Going. Yeah, mm. at the end of, mm. particularly at the, at the end of a week or after mm. they've been traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... Uh, now I would say it was more, um, m- more to calm people yeah. down. More alcohol, in particular. Mm. Uh, mm. So I, I mean, I have a small I sample, but you. it's not an end. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I was just mm. thinking before um, when Peter was asking me that I don't see as many people coming in for amphetamines and cocaine as I used to. It still happens, mm-hmm. but the main drugs now are opioids and um, benzodiazepines and alcohol. Yeah. Uh, You know, it sounds like this is uh, associated with increased stress. Mm -hmm. So if you you look, uh, Carolyn, at the... At the causes behind it, I mean the behavior that's that's uh, maybe driving this, 
Do you see any big changes? I would have thought, for example, at the executive ranks, people have been about as stressed out as possible for quite a while. But do you see any changes in what precipitates these addictions? I don't know. I think there's a lot to lose. I think there's more competition. I think coming out of the best schools, Wharton being one, Mm -hmm. there's a lot more competition than there used to be Mm -hmm. even 20 years ago, 10 years ago. I I think there is, um, I I think we're living in some pretty challenging times. I think it's, it's hard to say. I think there, I think competition is great. I think under any kind of, when people are working long hours under huge stress, making big deals that it, it, you know, the stress is there. I don't know if there are circumstances mm-hmm. in the world that are making it more so, but people are definitely using substances a lot, and we get calls all the time. Yeah. Folks, we're talking with Carolyn Connolly, who's the clinical director of the Dunes in East Hampton, a recovery uh, place. We're going to talk about the recovery part of this in just a minute, and let me also offer, if you've got a question Uh, For Carolyn, possibly for Greg, certainly not for me, because I don't know much of anything about this. You can call us if you're listening on Thursday. We are live. Here's our number, 1-844-942-7866 or 1-844-WHARTON. You know, one of the patterns that I wonder about is how addiction uh, proclivities change with age, you know, uh, I have this image that alcohol gets used more by older people uh, in the workplace. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. Um, and it does seem to me that younger people, maybe earlier in their careers, don't use it as much, use other drugs, maybe up more drugs, drugs to bring them up more. Um, either of you have a sense of that, about whether there's a sort of age-related effect mm, to this? I don't, I don't see that. You I don't. think that alcohol across the board, across the board. Yeah. and mm-hmm. all those drugs across the board. For sure, I think over time, uh, alcohol has, I think, become less used uh, because it used to be maybe the only one, right? I mean, you couldn't get access to other, other drugs weren't as available. We didn't have uh, the range of drugs a generation ago that we have now. So it was alcohol all the time. And I certainly remember the age of three martini lunches, and actually it was kind of fun. <laughs> People would stop doing work early uh, in the day. It was not good for productivity, and it wasn't good for people's livers for sure. But, you know, the idea that people in the workplace would be coming into work loaded was pretty common, or certainly Maybe it was just around me. I don't know, but I, I saw it a lot. Well, perhaps on a social level, you might see those kinds of shifts happening. But I think in terms of quantity, and I think in terms of intensity, and maybe waiting till after work to get it all in rather than spreading it out from lunch to dinner. Yeah. But I still think, you know, you, your statistics said that there's um, 27 billion people that are costs for people, you know, being treated for alcohol. And I have to say that, you know, that speaks for itself. Yep, it's a big number. I, I'd also uh, think that the the normalization of binge drinking exactly. uh, in high school, college, and mm-hmm. through the 20s uh, yeah. is quite different uh, than, not that it never occurred uh, when I was that age, but it, it didn't have the, 
the the normalcy about it yeah, that okay. seems to be uh, there now. It's simply an, an accepted activity. Do you think that's because of the higher drinking age in lots of states? Uh, I, I, actually, that does kind of strike me that way in college campuses because you can't go to a bar and drink uh, if you're unless you're a senior and you turn 21. So people get alcohol uh, from their friends at home. They drink it or at their apartment, and then they go out to the bars. Right? But this this target of blacking out. Oh, that that was you know, yeah, the goal. That, yeah. you're, that you're really going to get to the point where you're, um, you know, vomiting is an accepted end state. Um, blacking out is a is an objective. I yeah. mean, I, that 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 happened, but I, I don't agree. recognize it as being. Uh, a target. Yeah, uh, that's what you went to go and yeah. do for number right, people. for sure. And I also think that might be indicative of the society as a whole. And you were asking the question before about like what kind of brings it on for executives. And I just think that overall, there's a kind of a push. There's an intensity to succeed, to work, to drink, to, mm. to anything you do. Mm-hmm. It's very, very intense. Yeah. And that yeah. thing you talked about, those three lunch martinis, mm-hmm. that was indicative of, an, of another time where things did move at a slightly slower pace. Yeah, it could be. And certainly it seems, if you look at advertising and things, that... Mad men. Yeah, you're, <laughs> in those days. But but now that you're supposed to be terrific at everything, exactly. you know, not just in the workplace, but after work, you're supposed to be the triathlete and the Olympic skier and all this other stuff. So, so I, I, one, I, one more thing, and I know we want to talk to, to the actual recovery stage. Do you also treat uh, folks who end up at the state of really being in burnout? Well, yes, because they're really very often linked. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the questions in the email that you sent was, you know, what is the problem of addiction among executives specifically? And I think that there are certain characteristics that of, of, of executives that I see that are different than others. And, and one of them is this, um, this idea that there really isn't a tremendous amount to lose, that there's a lot of pressure in terms of maybe often these people have, you know, hundreds of people working under them, yeah. and that all of these people are at risk, in a sense, if, if their boss starts to lose it. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, um, the pressure mounts, you know, and yes, burnout is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the more positive note. Uh-huh. So the the evidence suggests that uh, treatments for addictions have a hugely big payoff, right, in terms of reducing healthcare costs and improving people's productivity, but of obviously just making them uh, their lives way better. What seems to work in your experience? Can you tell us a little bit about what successful treatment looks like? Are you Are you asking me? Yeah. 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 So, well, I will say that I think the most important thing, and I and I notice this at the Dunes with our clients, is that if people can put the time in, twenty eight days is a minimum amount of time. Really, hmm. and I know that seems really crazy. And one of the things that is so great about the Dunes is that when we work with executives, we really build in time for them to do work, to make conference calls, to have their computers. Even to be escorted into the city to do um, business meetings and things, because we recognize the difficulty in stepping out of their world. Well, let's just stop on that for a second. So, if somebody is going into treatment and going into what we call on TV rehab, uh, when they go to you, they don't actually have to cut off from work. 
No, in fact, we really encourage people not to do that, oh, okay. which is hmm. a little unusual here yeah. at the Dunes, and I yeah. think it's a, it's a wonderful um, addition to the treatment because a lot of the programs, you know, well, people will kind of go into a bubble, and they, and they can do some good work in that bubble, yes. but when they come back out, they're, they're kind of like raw. And one of the things that we really work with people on is we let them keep their phones, we let them keep their computers. It's a way for us to see is this thing like completely ruling your life? It's yeah. a way for us to actually include it in the therapeutic work. But we also recognize that for a lot of people, they won't come into treatment if they don't have access to right. work. Right. So we make it part of their treatment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we notice a little bit of this here. We have a, a, a reasonably long executive program, five weeks or so. Uh, and watching how long it takes for people to disengage from if they disengage. if they disengage at all right from their from their work is quite quite a tricky thing to do okay so uh that's an interesting uh point well, that's the whole point yeah. we realize that that's not not going to happen yeah so yeah. let's figure out how to make it work so that we can we can see how much is it taking over their lives? How right. much can we help them to separate? Yeah. So a big part of this, I'm sure, is change of context, which is why I suspect it doesn't try. It doesn't work nearly as well if somebody is trying to stay home and go through some kind of rehab, right? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, there's access, right? Mm-hmm. Being staying away from whatever your your dealer or your or your doctor or the yeah. liquor store. Yeah, so being sure. in an environment where it's not available. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we are a really small um, facility. We are a residential facility. It's really comfortable. You don't feel like you're in a hospital or rehab. You feel like you're in a beautiful home. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of um, individual attention paid to the client. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of really good therapeutic work that goes on. At well, least three or four individual sessions and groups. So I think I think if you ask me what is good treatment, it's helping people really get to the core of themselves. And, and oftentimes between life and addiction and everything else, people have lost a sense of themselves. And so really for me, the work here is for clients to um, be able to slow down, take a breath, get the substance out of their system. Mm-hmm. We have a very holistic approach, so we really encourage all kinds of alternative treatments as well as diet and exercise and yoga and meditation and all of that. Okay. So that people are really are able to sort of get in touch with themselves again and mm-hmm. sort of get to the root of what was underlying the initial use to begin with. So let me ask you about the three, maybe three parts of this. So one is just getting kind of physically clean, that is getting this mm-hmm. stuff out of your mm-hmm. system. Uh, another is the maybe the peer support. Um, you're not doing this by yourself, but you're coming in with some kind of cohort that forms once you're there. Mm-hmm. And the third is this individual reflection, which I imagine turns on trying to figure out, you know, do I really want to be like this going forward? Could you say a little bit about those three, the relative importance of them mm-hmm. in terms of getting to a better place at the end of this? Well, you're really talking about <clears throat> things that... This is, um, to me, what holistic health and medicine is all about, and being able to take care of your physical body. Um, People who come to the dunes often are, um, even as you said, maybe trying to work out or trying to keep all the balls in the air, but usually have neglected themselves physically at some level. So we do start straight off the bat as they're getting cleaned up to do blood work and to get... um, a real total physical going, and to start to have some education for those who don't, um, who aren't thinking about it. 
um, about the importance of the physical mm-hmm. wellness. And then this thing you talked about, peer support, I mean, that is community and that is relationship. And and sometimes it, it we do have this um, recovery map that we use where we look at all the different areas of a person's life. And one of them is relationships and looking at the relationships that are healthy and the relationships that are not and what, what needs to happen there in order for people to, when they go back into their lives, not just fall into similar patterns. Right. And then that kind of does go right over into the, you know, that reflection piece. So with this map that they have, and they're looking at the different areas, their mental clarity and their emotional balance and their physical wellness and their relationships and even spirituality, as they look at all of these things, this is the time for reflection and conversation, which they have both with their primary therapist and also with the peers that are also in treatment. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a really powerful experience. I think people, everyone that comes through here has something that deeply changes inside of them when they leave. What, uh, Carolyn, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you what you have learned, uh, maybe personally, from doing this. Is there anything that watching this process <clears throat> with so many people has taught you something that you didn't know before? Um, that people are very similar. Huh. <laughs> And that it doesn't really matter what walk of life or how mm-hmm. much money you make or mm-hmm. how famous you are or mm-hmm. any of those things that when it comes right down to it at the heart of things, people are very similar yeah. and that our needs are very similar. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think for me, it was really understanding that when you get right down to when people come to a place like this, they're usually in some kind of a crisis. Right. And for people who are in this executive world, they've usually been people who have always been super successful in their life, and, yes. and mm-hmm. now all of a sudden there's something they don't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's really just about, you know, finding that people at the end of the day are really very much the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a number of people I'm sure who are listening um, would not end up at the dunes, but might have a similar problem. And if if they were in the process of looking through different alternatives, what would be one flashing red light that you'd say, if somebody tells you the following, be very, very cautious about proceeding with that treatment or that, that, that course of... Uh... That we can guarantee. Okay. Mm. We guarantee that if you come here, you'll, you'll get sober and stay sober. Mm-hmm. And I've seen those things. Mm-hmm. Because that whole getting clean and getting sober thing is an inside job. And it's... Um, it's hard to do from externally. You can't do it to people. Nobody can do it to you, yeah, right? What right. we can do is offer a lot of tools and yeah. a lot of information and education and support. And we have a wonderful aftercare program where we really help people get set up so whatever they're mm-hmm. doing here will will last for them. But, you know, it's still, at the end of the day, a person has to want to do something. Right. has to want to make right. a change. Right. That's a big marker. Carolyn, thanks very much for being with us. My pleasure. Carolyn Connolly is the clinical director at the Dunes East Hampton and Addiction Recovery Center. And, uh, Greg, uh, I wonder if you have a sense about what is weird about our society that this seems to be happening so much to people who appear to be so successful. Do you have to... Is it being the things you have to do to be successful that create so much trouble for people, you think? Or what's going on here, you think? 
Well, the, the classic response would be, uh, it depends. Yeah, right. And it's overdetermined and all that. This is but radio, this is just so, us talking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think a big piece of that from an organizational standpoint is that we regularly set up organizations uh, in a way that requires ongoing heroic action yeah. by some set of players to keep the thing together. Mm-hmm. And that may that may uh, feed people's ego. Egos. It may yep. they may mm-hmm. be actually uh, rewarded in all kinds of ways for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the end, a system that re- relies on heroes will simply keep yep. eating up the heroes. Yeah, uh, so that's a great point. And and I think uh, can I go now? Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. You get in. You get a gold star. <laughs> Give him a candy on the way out. Um, but I think not only that. I think, but I I go a little further. The sense that. That if the organization is failing, it's your fault, right? Uh, And not just the CEO's fault at the top if the whole organization is failing, but if your division is failing, it's the leader's fault, right? And this perception that if you only really tried harder, you can pull this out. And it seems to me that is kind of a cultural thing. I mean, if you look at – I'm always stunned looking at our advertisements now on TV, and they're all about – you know, perseverance, that if you just power through, right. you could lick that cancer thing. You, know? you don't have to You don't have to have that cold. Yeah, you just right. Take enough drugs you know, and you'll be all right. Yeah, you and know? You, if you just try harder, this could all go away, right. right? And persevere. And, of course, you know, there's a lot of perseverance, which is really dysfunctional, right? I mean, well, there's, a, there's so many attributes of uh, leadership, for example, that end up being we we put them out as a characteristic when in fact it's a balance right so mm-hmm. tenacity mm-hmm. is tremendous until it's not and, yeah, i mean right, at some point right. you're just being right. pig-headed yes you know, right. you're, you're closed down to feedback you're closed <laughs> right. down to reality right. you're not being tenacious yeah right you're right. acting stupidly right 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 yeah we better get off this mountain <laughs> <laughs> right now for more insight from business radio please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu